Welcome to the Palm Court Podcast. I'm Mike Palmer. You'll hear today from Dr. Anderson Brown and friend of the show, Grant Balfour, who joined me a couple months back to process a little bit of what's going on at New College and also just riff on some of the interesting work that Anderson in particular has been doing. He's a philosophy professor out of the University of Puerto Rico. It's great to get Anderson's perspective as someone who attended New College at an earlier time than us. He's also really an interesting thinker, a philosopher who is sharing a lot of his work through his YouTube channel. We respond to a few of his pieces, which we'll include in the show notes as part of the conversation. And there is, of course, talk of the metaphysics of chatbots. We hope you enjoy. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Anderson Brown, who's a professor out of the University of Puerto Rico in Mayaguez. And I also am joined by Grant Balfour, who I have been in contact with as a fellow New College alum for many, many years. Grant, welcome to the show. Hi. And Grant, what's your, how would we describe <clears throat> your background? How would you describe your background? How would I describe my background? Yeah. If you're talking professionally, I've been an editor and media person for ages. Yeah. That magazine cool. editor, writer, editor, tabloid poet. Delightful. Delightful. And then Anderson, can you catch us up a bit on your backstory, how you got to this point in your professional life? Sure. I guess I'll talk about how I got to new college in the first place. I graduated from high school in 1976 in Rochester, New York. And then I didn't really want to go to college, but I didn't really have many, very many other plans. And it got to be, you know, the end of the summer. And I mean, my dad was sort of like, well, you can't stay here. And I went out to Utah State University because they would just accept me at the last minute. I, I, you know, I flunked out of Utah State University, but I did a lot of camping and traveling around the Rocky Mountains. So it actually was a really good year for me. Mm -hmm. and back to New York and I was the receiving invoice clerk in the University of Rochester Library for a year, just sort of living along, you know, not having, shall we say, the most, you know, the healthiest lifestyle in the You were finding yourself in 76, 77, something to that mm -hmm. effect? Yeah, I was or not or failing to. I yeah. was not doing Look well at, in you were, 77. You were looking for yourself. You may not I have was, found yeah, yourself. Yeah, and, and not finding him. And so then, you know, my, my dad had always been interested in university administration and he had been, you know, I don't want to brag about my father because I'm not him, but he had been shortlisted for UVA for the three guys and he didn't get it, sort of thought that was it. And then he saw that the University of South Florida presidency was open and he applied for it and got the job. My father was the president of USF in Tampa from 1978 to 1988. Wow. So then I had been in school with this guy who had gone to a place in Sarasota called New College. Randy was his name. He was an older guy who I thought was cool. And he had told, he had mentioned this place in New College. He didn't work out. He dropped it out and come back. But he told me about this place. And then my dad got this job in Tampa. And they said, and I was just up in Rochester. And they said, you know, there's this place in Sarasota, New College, you know, and it's a liberal arts college. And so, okay. And I went there and I showed up there when I was 20 years old. And the reason I wanted to say that was because, you know, I wasn't doing very well at all. And I got to Sarasota and they didn't have the grades and they didn't have 
you know, all that kind of stuff. And I could sit down with Bob Knox was my sponsor and I studied oh. with Bergman and I did a double major. I studied with Donicky a lot. And I did a double major at philosophy and history. Yeah. With Knox as my sponsor, because I came in as kind of a literature person, but as soon as I got there, I discovered a lot of other stuff. Mm -hmm. So, so new college with its particular degree of freedom and independent study was what I needed. I, you know, I wouldn't have done well in a school that wanted me to do a lot of requirements or that wanted me to do a lot of paperwork for that. Right. So, you know, stupid to say, but I'm philosophical. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen now, but I think that that independent study contract system without the grades for me was really the thing. And if that goes away, then I think that's kind of the end of it. But for us, that was working, but it worked for me because I was really, really loose and really irresponsible. You know, I cut loose a lot of things halfway through. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, let me tell you, this is a true story. I had to petition to erase a fall semester, okay, mm -hmm. up in front of the uh, Student Academic Affairs Committee, which was the Student Academic Status Committee. Yeah. It was pretty tough. They would throw people out. For sure. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then I had to petition to erase the semester and just have it zeroed out. Yeah. And I wanted also that to happen and not tell my parents who are up in Tampa about this. Mm. Story, you know? Right. And then, I don't know, I'm, I'm too stoned or something and I don't show up at the meeting. But Knox, Bob Knox shows up and mm. he gets them to erase the semester for me and it's everything's okay. Wow. And he sees me later, have, me not having so He says, this, that Tidewater accent of his, you know, he's, you know, Andy, I have this little card in my pocket where I write down where I have to be all day. It's a little <laughs> odd, you know. That was all, that, and that was all he said about it. That was it. So, yeah. you know, like I said, I would never have gotten through anywhere else at that point in my life. You know, I was right. maladjusted. Yeah, so but thank God for a new college is what I say. But yeah, you know, it's not that was not for everybody. There yeah. were plenty of people who would leave and you know stuff. I mean, it was yeah, absolutely. Only about three hundred people there. At that okay, time. got it. Yeah, by the time Grant and I were there, I think it was probably closer to five or six hundred. But the numbers tended was, to stay. It was five when I was there. Five hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it never really went huge. There's a sense of smallness to it and connection and intimacy with your faculty. Yeah. Your relationship with Bob Knox, as an example, you mentioned Doug Berggren too, like the personal relationships that students develop yeah. with the faculty. Yeah, and then the idea is, you know, the entire experience is student-led. Recently, you've been doing more videos. You've been doing memoir-type content as one flavor of them. And you were talking yeah. about your experiences, you know, 1978, reading feminist literature. We'll get into that in a second. We also want to talk about the metaphysics of chatbots, you know, because we, <laughs> we want to bring the value to our listeners and stay frisky. But at the same time, you did go from new college into a career as an academic, as a philosopher, and now you've been in Puerto Rico for a while. So can you round out that aspect of your story? I got out of new college. I finished in 1982 and I moved up to Boston. I still, I didn't graduate in 1982 because I didn't defend my thesis until June. And I still had an ISP left to do, which I did that year. So I came back in the spring of 1983 and graduated, but I left in the spring of 1982. And just, and, you so want to mention what an ISP is? I, I, you want to do that, please? An yeah. independent study project. We had to do four <laughs> independent study projects which you had to agree with a sponsor, just like a semester. And I always did papers. Not everybody did papers. I did it on a Jungian analysis of Homer's Iliad. And it was quite the major piece of crap that I must say, 
Yeah, I wrote it in Widener Library at Harvard because I went up to Boston. I got a job in the preservation section at Widener Library, and I worked there for two years. Right. And then, because a bunch of my friends from Rochester were living in Cambridge at that time. So it was, and that was fun. And then my girlfriend and I went to South America, and I traveled. I went overland from Colorado to Bolivia over the course of about oh, wow. months or so. And Wow. So that was cool. And then we got back to... Boston and she was from Denver. So we moved out to Denver and then I had to decide whether I was going to go to University of Massachusetts Amherst, University of Colorado Boulder, but I just moved out to Colorado. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to Boulder. Yeah. But then she and I broke up like that here. So I just moved up to Boulder without her. So it was just, you know, it was completely kind of random that I did that. And then I just and I like teaching it's a, a good, lot. It's a good place to land, though, Anderson. Yeah, oh, no, know? Boulder was very good to me. I lived in Boulder for 10 years. I yeah. lived in Boulder for 10 years yeah, until, nice. I, until I got my PhD and took the job down in Puerto Rico. So you went straight from Boulder to Puerto Rico, and then you've been there for uh, some time now, right? Yeah, sure. 27 years I've been living in my West Puerto Rico. Yeah, and we want to get in a little more into some of the stuff you've been putting out there. We'll share that in the show notes too. Some of your YouTube videos are certainly interesting. I know both Grant and I were intrigued, but then Grant also get your origin story, however you choose to tell it. Can you just quickly introduce yourself and give a few notes? Let's see. I, I wound up at New College as a student at a Catholic school in West Palm that was not super academically rigorous. And I wasn't very much into the football team, basketball team. I yeah. was on the swim team, but, you know, swimmers. And I heard about New College, and I knew that UF had an honors college. And I actually decided to go to New College on a coin flip. Interesting. Like, I, like I knew I had to go in-state. We were not yeah. like, super God. wealthy family. My dad's a freelance journalist, and I inherited his spirit. Yeah, and this, um, by the way, this may be a little foreshadowing if you're talking about flipping coins. Yeah, there you go. And I honestly, I don't know if I would have said, screw it, I'm going to new college anyway, if the coin had come up the other way. Yeah. It was either this very big school, which had a, like a little school inside it, or this tiny school that was kind of, this is after the merger. I don't know how the merger like lines up with you, Anderson, but... You're talking about like 1985, 1988, when we're late 80s now? Is that what you're talking about? I, let's see, I graduated in 90, so I came in in 86. All right. Yeah. 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 And you were coming in from Florida, a Catholic school. I was school. coming in from Florida, so I like had to be an in-state school because of right. tuition. And, you know, New College, I think, was, as one of our alums likes to say, uh, price of a good-sized stereo. Yeah, basically uh, free, really. I mean, yeah. yeah. Man, I look over those receipts now. I have two kids in college age now, and I just look over those old, like, I still have some of that old paperwork. And I'm like, wow, good no, Lord, yeah. this is not one class that my daughter takes at FSU. Yeah. Um, my but, kid's going to college next year, too. Oh, yeah. That's right. Can you spell professory note? I mean, oh. yeah. Yeah, I went to New College. I was a big fan of Bob Knox. I did a thesis under Doug Bergeron. Made my own major because, again, yeah, Disorganized but intelligent is sure me. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought I would be an English major and become an English professor, and then sort of realized the semester that you have to declare your major that Knox's Japanese novel does not substitute for art of the novel as a prereq for mm -hmm. English. And at the same time, I was taking a postmodern aesthetics class with Bergeron and I cannot remember her name, art art history teacher Carrasco, and I was taking. Um, 
group tutorial with Donald Lopez, who's a big Tibetan Buddhist scholar who was visiting at the time. Cool. And we were both, in both fields, we were reading Gadamer's text on hermeneutics. And I'm like, okay, ancient Buddhist scripture, postmodern aesthetics covers both. What more could you ask for? Yeah. It touches on religion. It touches on literature. It touches on art history. It's philosophical and it's about how people read things and find meaning in them. Yeah. I think for that. Yeah. I think I learned, I may have been familiar with the term, but I think the term was reified by your experience where it was something that I'm so glad. And it was also a reminder though, that you can kind of, you can get away with some stuff as a new college student too. If you're, there needs to be some intellectual rigor to what you're doing. You need to be scholarly about it. But, you know, getting away with it has a certain connotation to it. But there's some truth to that. But also there's tremendous freedom. So kudos to you yeah. that you were able yeah. to. Because hermeneutics, we still need it today, Grant. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's very right. relevant now. And it's served, served me in good stead through the years. But yeah, that was my major. I went on to graduate school in English at UF. Was not terribly well understood there. And uh, they might have needed more hermeneutics on the other side. They might have. Yeah. Oddly, I kept get, being attracted to the sort of the critical theory classes, even though this was early enough that they didn't even call it critical theory yet. Yeah. How was graduate but, school in Tallahassee? Was that fun? Oh, well, I was at Gainesville. I was in oh, UF. You were at Gainesville. Oh, oh, oh UF. I at FSU, but, I'm sorry. No, yeah. I'm, I was at UF. You're at um, the swamp. But oddly, yeah. the professor I got along with best was a medievalist. But, mm-hmm. and I really probably should have like gone more in that field. Because he was also a medievalist who was into illuminated manuscripts and this new technology oh, called CD-ROM. Oh, interesting. He said. But the the scale of student loans kind of freaked me out. And I, you know, had been trained by new college to not care about grades, which is Who's not a- necessarily a good adaptation when TA ships depend on them. Yeah. It was also Fair. the 90s, too, you know, yeah. so, you know, a little bit of whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of whatever going on. Yeah. So I basically left there with a master's. I comped out with a test. I'd already written a thesis at New College. I didn't feel like I needed to write another one. Yeah. And then kind of followed in my dad's footsteps as a freelance journalist, mm-hmm. got into creative tabloids. I, I can tell you stories about how Bat Boy came into being. This is the podcast um, I want to produce with you, Grant, yeah. but we're not doing that right oh, now. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah. The Nostradamus. And oddly enough, like Bible prophecy became a very important thing. End times prophecy, which is a strange way to apply a hermeneutics degree, but it worked. It, it works with the medievalist um, thing too, Grant. There's all yeah. sorts of connections we could make here. Yeah. Not um, just breakfast anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Along the way, like I did some TV work and got involved with some independent film stuff around here. And, you know, my dad always says he's, what is he? He's 85 now. And he says he doesn't know what he wants to do when he grows up. Yeah. My model right there. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been making things. You've been helping connect the dots among the new college community. And that's part of what got the three of us together to really have this conversation. And then the other jumping off point, although I like the storytelling and going deep on the new college side, is that more wearing your philosophy professor's hat, Anderson, you've been creating some videos really starting in the pandemic. One is you talking about your experiences at New College, being exposed right. to feminist theory and reading some some seminal works. So maybe we could start with some quick beats on that, because I think it'd be interesting for us all to reflect a little bit on that aspect of New College and sort of respond to the concept of the you know, woke factory and indoctrination camp that oh, yeah. is, has been put out there. 
so let me just riff out on a little. Yeah. You know, one thing we, you know, starting to make these videos during the pandemic, and you know, obviously first starting to make them just to give to the poor students who are stuck in their houses during the bad, you know, old days yeah. of that. Right. But after a while, you know, I also realized, wait a minute, I'm 65 years old. I've been teaching since I was 28 years old. I've been teaching my own classes. And I said, I can document some of these lectures that I've given for a really long time. Yeah. And so that's been something really nice. You know, I've never you know, had any idea of making any money or anything like that about it. For me, it's really more just, as I say, just documenting a lot of stuff kind of for myself. We can put it all up there on YouTube and shake stuff out and see what happens. So, yeah. And then getting to the video, I mean, I'm in my sixties. I been thinking about being in my sixties a lot. I noticed that I have this tendency now to preface everything with it. Like, well, I'm 65 and I've been doing all this for a really long time. And I say, you know, and I, it's really, you know, it's, I'm really self-conscious of that. So, mm-hmm. so I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about, you know, just new college and realizing and I had always, as I say in the video, you know, and I always actually had in my only in my own mind realized that studying these feminist theory books when I first got there, which I sort of bought and read because I was kind of feeling torn up about the end of my first relationship. And I was, you know, full of sorts of, yep. yeah. I didn't really have any real rational reasons for that. Hmm. But looking at that stuff had, was a big part of me getting into like social theory, philosophy, yeah. politics moving on from just wanting to be a novelist and a, you know, bohemian writer kind of person and getting more out into social and political stuff and theory stuff. I had a quick question on that, Anderson. The way it read when I, I first watched your video was that it sounded like you just picked up those, that there wasn't a formal like curricular aspect to you reading these books. It was more, you were already on your own intellectual journey and you were going to new college and it was 1978. You went to the bookstore, you picked up some books. Bookstore. I couldn't even tell you what bookstore it was. I was starting my road trip out to California the summer before I went to Florida. I walked into a bookstore, found the shelf, women's studies or whatever it said, and just mm-hmm. grabbed like five or six books and threw them in the back seat of the car. And also just putting this into context. Out west. Was, you got a little bit of Jack Kerouac on the brain. It's post-beatnik, but it well, is yeah, still I mean, if you want, I, mean, I, guess, you know, I wasn't so crazy as to think that, although I was driving across the country with this woman smoking marijuana and reading feminist books and camping in the Black Hills, South Dakota. Are you working but, on a screenplay, Anderson? This sounds know, like it might have legs. Uh, but no, this is bad country. <laughs> no, but so, yeah, but that's the thing about New College, though, too, you know, look, because right now the discussion is, shall we make a curriculum, a great books curriculum, right. which places like St. John's and Deep Springs, yep. and I respect those programs, you know, and I could have maybe had a good time at a program like that, too. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. New College is just the opposite of that. New College, the idea was you're going to go and explore and find something and develop something on your own. And, you know, that's how it worked. It certainly wasn't for everyone, but that's, but that was the idea. And mm-hmm. for the right person like me at that point, you know, and reading like those feminist books, it's just a question of just let them loose, just let them loose. You know, what college mostly, the most expensive thing about college all the time, mm-hmm. you have to carve out like right. a year or two for someone to hang out reading. That's real expensive. Yeah. That's really the biggest luxury of the whole thing. And at New College, we're just like, well, you know, God, read a book, go to the bibliography of the book, look at all these really cool books. When I was doing history, I got with Donaghy, and he's real obsessed with me. I got real obsessed when I was studying the war in Indochina for a long time and just oh, go well, to the yeah. bibliography of the book 
and read all the books in the bibliography yeah. and read all the books in the bibliographies of those books. It's just yeah. crazy. But yeah. you know, if the will is there, you just turn someone loose and they're going to do it. Again, that's not for everybody, but at the right moment, you know, give me a cool place to live where I can party with these little friends of mine. And then, you know, I can read whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And for me, that worked. I understand why that might not work for everyone. But for me, New College was the perfect place. Yeah. And it's also interesting to just think about how, in some ways, it's a, an experiment in like radical student-led intellectual freedom, as okay. opposed to indoctrination. If anything, yeah. at least my experience, and again, this is going back to the 90s, but like, it was more the absence of indoctrination that became the the prevailing yeah. thing there where like you became right. critical it's like critical thinking you became critical of almost everything to a fault to the point where you're coming to question everything yeah but i think that level of critical thinking is what i find so frustrating about the changes that i'm seeing there where if anything yeah. it seems to be about you know creating a monolithic way of thinking they mean to change the culture and if they change the culture that's going to change what the intellectual experience is. Let me just share of the metaphor that I've had in my mind for a long time. You know, out in the Veld in South Africa, there are these yep. butterfly hammocks. There are <laughs> these places where the grass grows into these little hammocks, and they have their own little species of butterflies. And some of those, it's the only place where that species is found in the world. Where British collectors used to get the species and then torch the hammocks, so they'd have the only, you know, yeah. the only. British so collectors, yeah, those, right? those so lep lepidiatrists. Yeah. Yeah. Life of the party. But uh, so anyway, though, I mean, you know, again, I left there in 1982, really. And I would never, I mean, I had a couple friends for a few years who lived in Sarasota. My my really good friend, Adam DeBruge, was in Sarasota for a long time. Oh, yeah. Maybe I might pass through once or twice. But the thing that struck me was that I would come into this little tiny place where I hadn't been in 10 years. Maybe I'd been there in 20 years. And, you know, I'd walk out into the, you know, pay dorms and start to talk to some kid with all due respect. But what I would find was that same little culture. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. that same little Bohemian culture unique mm -hmm. was still there in this little tiny place. It's like the guys in this, you know, off Antarctica climbing up the rock and they find the insects up there that nobody thought were alive. Right. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of, it's this little enclave. And I was always really impressed with the cultural persistence of the thing, that it was right. still definitely well, new college. That always impressed me. And, you know, that's what they aim to stamp out, by the way. They're trying to torch the hammock, Sanderson. That's they're torching the hammock. It's not institutional viability to take a, a white nationalist guy from the Northeast and put him on the board of trustees. That's right. not because of institution. That's a political stunt. Right. So don't confuse taking steps to prove institutional viability with a political stunt where, you know, these, this white nationalist guy is on the board of trustee, you know, and, you know, you're, and you're talking about, you're talking about Chris about Rufo. Rufo, Rufo, yeah. Rufo. Yeah. And, if, and that's just definitive, you know, I'm I mean, from Seattle, they're not, he, like I say, he is a, it's white nationalist ideology and, you know, it's, that's just a line, you know, don't ask he was, me to participate. New college is dead to me as long as Rufo's on it. Right. You know, I know, I don't mean to sound grandiose when I say it's, Rufo or me, but it's Rufo or me, you know? Right, right. You know, I think that's just a thing. Well, yeah, yeah. That's a horrible topic. But no, it's, I mean, yeah. it's the reality that we're all responding to. And in some ways, uh -huh. our, this is reacting against 
some of that. This is sort of institutional reform. I keep coming back to it's like Whoville after the Grinch has stolen Christmas and like we're getting together around the campfire. The only difference is I don't think his heart's going to get any bigger. I think he's going to continue to be and not just him. I mean, there is like a there's a level of cruelty and cruelty, cruelty, really, you know, like people off to Martha's Vineyard, right? Making it six weeks abortion thing under the radar. All of a sudden it's true. Right. You know, no, it's definitely, he's kind of sadistic. A new college. The other thing though, you know, while we're on this horrible topic, you know, it's always very classic Southern strategy. Sorry, but there's a lot of racism going on. It was always about, you know, you can run over black protesters, don't hit the Cubans and don't give them any water while they're waiting in line to vote. And, you know, and woke right. is just as equating black people with LGBTQ people, yep. not really fully human people, sure. people like that. which is a long history of race, de- you know? dehumanization. Really yeah, a lot about race. So that's another point about the whole takeover that people need to stay on, you know, because it's part of this whole larger thing. And yeah, exactly. It's very startlingly racist to me, among other things. You have a lot of experience as a professor over the years, I imagine, staying critical and understanding the culture that is around us where like these waves happen, although this is a little bit unprecedented in that people are saying the quiet stuff out loud. Yeah. A, a lot little scary, down, yeah. but you know, I mean, look, the problem yeah, I was in school was there since the 60s, and that's a really cool thing. It was a wave of authoritarianism that has come and that will wash over and pass away. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, I do believe it may be that the old new college is gone because of this. Yeah. But this is just a bunch of, you know, awful authoritarianism washing, sloshing through for a few years. And then like any force, they're countervailing forces. This is part of the countervailing force Those too. Like we're, corrections. And even just talking about the, the history, what the legacy of our experience means to yeah. us, yeah. that can ultimately translate into something new that is kind of built on what we learned. Because also... I think we all realized the new college that we went to wasn't perfect. No institution. Oh, God, no. Perfect. <laughs> marginal. It was a marginal place, but I was a marginal yeah. guy. Was yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I wait, risk your life to run across the street. Yeah, but it was also there. That was where I belonged at that time. It was very tolerant and welcoming to the point that it would even wake people out of their intolerance, famously, yeah. where, you know, the, the, place. the son of Stormfront leader that's an amazing story you know derek black him turning around really by virtue of a genuine engagement in the discourse that happened at new college that's that's one of the classic new college stories i ever met him or any of those people right 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 but we did want to talk about chatbots as well and you are a philosopher by trade so we try to give the people what they want and if the people really is just me I want to talk about give the person what he wants. I want to talk about the metaphysics and the Cartesian dualism and a lot of the really interesting topics that you raised when you were mm-hmm. talking about what's in the zeitgeist. I also like to talk about zeitgeists a lot. Mm-hmm. That GPT is everywhere. There's no avoiding it. The AI robot overlords are mm-hmm. nigh. You responded to that with the channel that you have pumping out philosophy, kicking some knowledge for the kids and for any of us who want to listen to and learn from what you have going on. Can you describe a little bit what went into putting that together? Yeah, I do specialize in philosophy of mind and I work on issues like mental representation, that kind of stuff. Then, you know, in terms of classical philosophy, like metaphysics, the mind body problem, stuff like that. And I teach the philosophy of psychology class every semester. 
And in the past at the University of Puerto Rico, we had a grant where we were developing interdisciplinary study probe courses. One of the ones we developed was the artificial intelligence course. And so I co-taught that with a computer scientist and a psychologist a few years ago. We did it a couple of times. And then earlier this semester, we had a public talk on some other grant of some kind, which had a scientist from Twitter remotely. And that was me and a linguist and the same psychologist that I've taught. AI, uh, AI with before. So getting ready for that talk, I made the chatbot video, but it's something everybody's been thinking about. Let me just distill it. I'm not going to, you know, camera. <laughs> yeah, and we'll Look. include the link. We'll the, include yeah, the link include if the folks link. want to go Give deep. some traffic on my YouTube channel. Sure. But look, the chatbot is telling you how many chairs are in the room. If you think that it's actually referring to a chair, then mm -hmm. you're already there. Then you think the chatbots are going to take over the world. It's in love with you. It thinks you commit suicide. It's like, you know, all the crazy stuff everybody thinks. All you need, the basic illusion is that you think that when it says chair, it's referring to a chair. It's not. It's not referring to anything. It's not a symbolic engine of any kind at all. You know, if I say orange to you and you know what oranges are you know about sticking your thumb through the skin and pulling the skin off and it's kind of white and flaky and then you pull the sections apart and what it's like when you put that in your mouth that's why you that's what it means to say that you know what orange is so you get this conventional symbol orange and you what you interpret it what is interpreting it you say oh it's one of those things what does it mean to know what that is, to know what that experience is? And by the way, is that some sort of universal God's eye thing? No, it's not. It's because you have a human body. It's very specific. And that's why, you know, you can interpret a symbol that stands for orange. You know, these machines, they don't interpret anything. They don't know it's a symbol. They don't know anything. They just have a rule. If you see a little squiggle, you put a little squaggle. That's all it is. It's just yeah. it's mechanical. Right. So, Probab so again, probabilistic. Yeah. Distilled, distilled. You think it's conscious because you think it's referring. The thing that's fooling you into thinking it's conscious is that you're fooling yourself that it's referring. That when it says chair, it means a chair. Like when Shuffling I think it's a chair. Yeah. It's a symbol. And it doesn't do that at all. So, you know, the whole thing is just see how deep that whole illusion is. Right. Right. I mean, you know, you just think it's referring to things with language. It's just not. <laughs> it's a paradoxical, yeah. right? Yeah, the, yeah. The psychological phenomenon that causes us to see patterns. It's oh, sure. spaces in clouds, right? Oh, well, we're absolutely going back to my tabloid days. We're absolutely you know? disposed to. We're absolutely yeah. disposed to do it. And we answer Virgin Mary in my griddle. Yeah, exactly. There was a trend coming right out of ChatGPT to talk about how generative AI hallucinates. Yeah, when well, in that's reality, a, that's a technical term. That's a term of art. That yeah. Word. And then the, the Cartesian the, word. And then the yeah. word that I've heard instead is that it creates misinformation, which it, it aggregates. It does. It's not it's doing the same thing it did when it was yeah. telling you the true stuff. Right. Doesn't but matter it, if it's true or false. It's just right. aggregating things. It'll just keep aggregating things. And it's almost Pavlovian, though, too. It's almost like we are reinforcing the patterns. The thing that I don't like about it is that you say I'm using it to produce new information, but it's just feeding off all the existing databases. Right, right. So, so I don't understand this yeah. problem very well, but on <laughs> some level, you're just reinforcing what's already there, and there's something not cool about that. I've that's heard sort of, of roughly a problem. I'm thinking right, about Right, yeah, that's a political aspect to it right there. Well, but, you know, 
I mean, right. there's people who control and guard these databases that their little yeah. chat box beasties are ranging over too, by the way. And that's right. a weird thing that I don't Well, think. and also the intellectual property rights to the initial data sets that were captured, where basically it's scraping yeah. the internet and then suddenly, it's particularly true around some of the mid-journey and Dolly, like some of the image generators. But at the same time, you know, yeah. this stuff is out there. It's everywhere. We were foreshadowing earlier flipping of a coin and I know, Grant, you were connecting the ChatGPT to the I Ching. Right. And I also know that Anderson has done some work on Eastern religions and right. philosophy. So, Grant, you haven't had a chance to extemporize Got longer now. So please yeah, expand, expound for us about the I Ching yeah. and how it connects to generative AI. Proceed. Oh, my God. See, the thing is... I don't want to turn this into an hour-long podcast about me and my adventures, but I run into this a lot online where people keep wanting to use ChatGPT to divine through the I Ching. And it seems like the two things are not entirely dissimilar in that you have a body, a corpus, the classic in one case, or whatever internet is being scraped in the other case, mm -hmm. that is then being recombined almost randomly with a little bit of a human input which in that way, it's sort of a hermeneutic process, a conversation with the text, so to yes, speak. Yes, yes. But it's interesting to me just how much chat GPT just fails at it. It is mm -hmm. bad at doing readings. It simply cannot create a through line to a, a, a human experience, which is what you were just talking about, but also like even within the text of the I Ching, it will do these nonsensical like, well, you know, the fifth line and the fourth line of your mm -hmm. hexagram change, it becomes this other hexagram. It does not become that one. It becomes right. a different one. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, that's interesting. Can't follow yeah. the rules very well. well yeah, also, exactly. It lies yeah. about the rules. It yeah, makes it look like it's following the rules, but it's like, uh -huh. that is not, I, if you know that once you know the rules, like that is not. That's the part I always struggle with because it reminds me a little bit of the Uncanny Valley. You know, yeah, where no, it's very, yeah. It's almost like the uncanny valley, the idea that if the simulation becomes almost human but just fails, there's a sense of being creeped out and unnerved that is it's very foundational to a lot of like robotics design and some of those other things. I almost feel like the flat out wrongness of a lot of these generative tools makes them almost seem less competent than they are in a way that almost makes yeah. me more sympathetic to it. It's you trying. Know, it, well, it also reinforces like my supremacy as a human. I, I say that I project personality onto these things when I do it. I say that the thing lies, right? And right. I people like to talk back to me about it. Oh, it's not lying. It has no intention. I mean, at all. it could be lying. designed to occasionally throw yeah. in, pepper in a little bit mm -hmm. of mystery. One of the things with the I Ching is that yeah. traditionally, you can regard it as having a spirit. There is a personality within the book, and that it's this small set. And you're, a lot of what you're reading is a lot of commentaries that have accrued over the ages, and it goes back to pre-writing, like bones that were put in a fire to crack in certain patterns, and then you would read the patterns. But the idea that there's this entity that is non-physical, non-corporeal, and not even finite, really, that you're somehow interacting with while dealing with the I Ching, which sounds super woo-woo and religious until you actually start, like... You do a couple of casts and you just see how things recombine. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, there's a personality there. Right. Something personality like. I'll let Anderson reflect on that. One thing, I mean, think about something I was talking about before. I mean, we were talking about the I Ching. I think this is true about Taoism in general. I Ching, of course, a foundational yeah. text for Taoism. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of Asian philosophy seems to me about sort of clearing away 
what uh, you might call mental formations, be suspicious about language, building barriers and things. So when we talk about finding the path, you know, it's not the notion there's one exactly the right path of only we could somehow find it, but rather this opening up, you know, you've been cutting off all these paths for yourself. If we treat the I Ching properly, the I Ching is going to give us, you know, some opportunities for maybe going in different directions. One thing strikes me there is another thing getting back to the AI is, you know, if you don't have phenomenal experiences, look, it's our phenomenal experiences of tasting, right. and touching. These By are, phenomenal, you're the, the philosophical. I yeah. just mean you have a body and it tastes like something and it feels like something yeah. and it feels like something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Consciousness. So experience yeah. of these qualities. And right. And so if you have that, then some of those are good and some of those are bad. And so therefore, now you're a being, an intentional being that wants the good stuff and doesn't want the bad stuff. Yeah, that's just part of being a conscious being, right? Now, why are yeah. you insulting something? And as to, and then another thing is this: if I'll, then I'll be quiet about <laughs> randomness, because random, right? You know, you burn the turtle shell, it cracks, or you take the entrails out of the critter, and yeah. you've got randomness. Mm-hmm. And randomness is hard to achieve. Computer people will tell you, but notice the problem with AI generating things is it's not random. They're just going as we were talking before. They're going back to these established pieces of text. Yeah. It's fake randomness. It's not really randomness. And so to the extent that the randomness is necessary to do the divination, you know, and then I think, I don't know, again, just shag and flies here, but there's something about this iterative nature of the AI that I think is, is a limit on that. Yeah. And even the physicality of flipping a coin versus the... Mm the actual bites and bits that are firing well, those little websites where you can throw the eating on the computers i think that's okay i think they probably yeah. have randomness in the program is no problem because we don't want to get we don't want to get cartesian about this anderson it's not like <laughs> those bits are not right. actually part of the natural right. world right well right. taoist teachings taoist metaphysics would tell us that when we throw the eating what we get is a slice of the state of the entire universe right yeah read out from that right everything is right now you know how they used to do random number generation i I know that this is true when i was at the tap back in the 90s there was actually a few places that would just like put a sensor in a faucet Mm -hmm. or on a tv tuned to static where it was just getting random cosmic radiation it's hard to get random this is hard yeah yeah so it would be like some kind of natural physical phenomena that was then broadcast through the internet like not even a website it was just raw internet data yeah. where they would just consult it like a library. Well, there is an element of that, you know, resonating on the same frequency. I'm going to try to tie it all together here too, where New College, to some extent, historically, has been a frequency that we've all been able to kind of tune into. Right. And just like when you are reading the bones, uh-huh. picking up on environmental signals, we're saying there's some danger signs around the culture that we understood, but if we can keep resonating on this frequency, hopefully that will point us in a good direction. Right. We're at time. I'd love to get maybe concluding thoughts from the two of you as we wrap up here. Okay, I'll go first real fast. Yeah. You know, I'm at a Palm Park party in 1978, 1979. I want to read the chain. What do I do? I turn up the remotes, I take my beer bottle, I smash it against the wall, and I read the shards. That's How amazing. I'm sorry, I can't beat that. Can I just follow you around for a while? <laughs> oh, Sage, teach me the way. Yeah, amazing stuff. At least we got something started here, guys. Thanks for spending some time with Thanks, me man. here. It was really fun. I appreciate it. I awesome. hope something good comes of it. Bye, you guys. <laughs>